So I want to begin with our uh, our martyology section, our study of various words in the New Testament that are used for various sins. Um, the word athelmitas, good grief. All right, the word athelmitas occurs twice in the New Testament. The first time is in Acts 10.28, and it's rendered there as as unlawful thing. First, uh, First Peter 4.3 contains the word also where it is translated as abominable. So the first usage, Acts 10.28, is unlawful thing. First Peter 4.3 um, renders it as abominable. So in the first instance, Peter uses the word to describe how it had been quote-unquote quote unlawful for Jews to keep close company with Gentiles. But now that God had removed the barrier between the two, we should accept his will in it. So God has removed the barrier that he, God, had set up in the Old Testament uh, laws, or the, at least the initial impetus in the Old Testament laws. But to get a sense of this word, we have to know that Jew-Gentile table fellowship, prior to the time when Christ declared all foods clean, would not just have been something that would have made the Jew guilty of an infraction. Um, it was the kind of unlawful that would have grossed him out. It would have been abominable. In other words, it's not just uh, against a rule uh, to associate closely with a Gentile. It would have been uh, detestable to do so. Uh, abominable nat- uh, actions of a moral nature are in view in the passage in First Peter 4. So it had to do with Jews and Gentiles in the Acts passage, and it has to do with uh, morality in the, in the First Peter passage. Back before a man was converted, he may have walked in the will of the Gentiles, which was orgiastic living, lust, license, drunkenness, out-of-control parties, and abominable idolatries. So um, we're talking about something that is not just technically an infraction. We're talking about something that... Uh, that uh, was uh, it was just gross so one of the differences between a moralistic man and a moral man can be seen at this point a moralistic man disapproves because he has to and he secretly wishes that he could have that he could have a piece of the action a moral man uh, doesn't object in the same way at all a moralistic man sees pornography for example as an orgy without him in it that's the the moralistic man uh, sees himself as excluded, and if I'm excluded, then I think everybody else ought to be excluded. A moral man reacts to pornography as an attempt to get up an appetite by watching people chew with their mouths open. It's um, not something that's attractive to him at all because he understands that, that that's, uh, this, that's contrary to the way God made the world. So there's, there's a difference between someone who... Uh, just considers this, uh, okay, there's a list of rules on the wall, and um, I've got a list of rules that I memorized in my heart. Uh, well, I've, I've got a, a list of rules on the wall or posted on the fridge, and I've got the, the actual, my actual feeling about the rules in my heart. And sometimes I have trouble getting those two, di- two lists of rules to line up. So uh, when, when a Jew... Uh, reacted away from fellowship with the Gentiles. It was, um, it, he had been trained from the time he was young to, to not fraternize with, with Gentiles. It, it basically, uh, it's got the, the full force of a societal taboo. 
And uh, if someone has been told his whole life that that bacon is gross, that uh, it's detestable, it's swine, it's this sort of thing, and then you offer him a BLT and he recoils, he's recoiling because of that, um, the the abominable nature of that behavior is, has been uh, drilled into him. And uh, and that's what this word, um, athematos, there I said it right that time, athematos, um, that, that's what this word is referring to. So here, podcast 13, we are uh, continuing our series of book plugs, book reviews, uh, book exhortations, uh, a book, uh, why don't you go out and get this one uh, reviews, uh, that sort of thing. I, t- today, I want to uh, commend to you a an author and a particular book by that author. The The author is Theodore Dalrymple. Um, he's written a number of um, books that I have found uh, very helpful. In Praise of, Preju- in Praise of Prejudice is one. Um, uh, Romancing Opiates is another one. Very uh, uh, That's an astonishing uh, book. Uh, Our Culture, What's Left of It is another good one. But the one I want to commend to you now is called Life at the Bottom. Life at the Bottom. Uh, uh, Theodore Dalrymple is a pseudonym. It's uh, This guy um, is uh, not writing under his uh, real name. In his real life, he worked for years at a hospital in London and um, and was working with uh, down-and-outers. And he has a lot to say about the pathologies of, of being down-and-out. Uh, and that's what this book is about, Life at the Bottom. And uh, it's very good for um, Americans to read because... Uh, what he demonstrates and what he shows is that that certain pathologies crop up when people are treated in a certain way. And when they are treated in that way um, with low expectations and they have a guaranteed income, they are subsidized, uh, the, the pathology of evading personal responsibility starts to take hold. And people start making very destructive life choices and and they they waste themselves away on drugs and dissolute living and all kinds of things and they have evasion of responsibility down to an art form down to us down to a science the thing that's striking about uh, about this for americans reading dalrymple describing um, inner city life in london is that the pathologies that we are we are accustomed to associating with inner city life in America, which is um, frequently a description of uh, inner city black life in America, uh, those pathologies are very much present in London, and and yet it's all white folks. So you, one of the things that is um, easy for uh, uh, racists or racialists to do is look at a particular subculture or a particular community that is living in a way that uh, is just not helping anybody, where you have the glorification of uh, violence, you have uh, acceptance of um, uh, having children out of wedlock, acceptance of fatherlessness, kids growing up without dads, and so on. Uh, and you look at the, those 
things. And uh, it's easy for someone who's only ever seen that kind of thing going down in one color to associate it with the color instead of associate it with <laughs> instead instead of associating associating it with the color of the bureaucrat who's administering the program. In other words, uh, uh, giving people giving people um, money to do irresponsible things is a is an idea that has been um, trotted out by uh, people who were by and large very very white and and they they think that way and they're just full of pure thoughts and uplift and they go in to to do good and they make a, they just destroy the, they just destroy communities uh, so think of it this way you have um, uh, you have a young girl who gets pregnant and she's let's say six, she's 16 and let's say her boyfriend has a job uh, sweeping out a, a warehouse or stocking produce or something and uh, she is then given an, a deal by the government uh, the government says listen uh, you can marry the father of this child and forfeit welfare benefits um, or you could stay unmarried, have the child, and be eligible for uh, aid for dependent children and be eligible for all the, these uh, goodies that the government so, will uh, supply to you. Well, as it turns out, the government is, a, uh, is more capable of supplying her with more money, more resources, than the father of that child can do. But the, that child desperately needs a father in the home he's growing up in and uh, it's it's contempt is beyond contemptible for white racists to look at this going on in the inner in the inner city and then attribute it to the the feckless character of the blacks who live there when uh, dalrymple shows that this is what happens whenever you set up this uh, this kind of um this kind of life, this kind of system, this kind of welfare state. You you get more of what you subsidize and less of what you penalize. And if you pay people to do irresponsible do irresponsible things, it's not you should not be surprising when they start doing uh, irresponsible things. So Dalrymple works in this hospital. He sees a, a sad trail of humanity uh, coming through, um, making excuses, um, uh, refusing to take responsibility, refusing to accept responsibility, blaming somebody else for their problems. And, and it, it's quite striking that, that you cannot live that way, you cannot think that way and have a good result. And going to the bureaucrats, you can't pay people to think that way. You can't pay people to operate that, that way. You can't pay them to... Uh, to to develop a dependency on you and then be astonished when it all comes apart. So, of course, we need to talk at some point about the NFL and um, athletes refusing to stand for the national anthem, uh, taking a knee during the anthem, etc. Um, this is a controversy that is rich and variegated. It goes in all kinds of directions. Uh, the president has sort of declared war on the NFL's um, toleration of this. 
the owners are, as I'm, as I'm recording this, the owners are in the process of uh, perhaps changing the rules uh, such that they would be able to require, require the players to stand during the national anthem. Then there's some people off to the side wondering why uh, we have, why do we have to uh, kick off um, sporting events with a tribute to the country? What, what's the point and what, shouldn't we just uh, start the game and, and, uh, and, and so on? So people are, are talking about the politics of it. They're talking about the legality of it. They're talking about the uh, uh, appropriateness of uh, protesting the behavior of municipal police departments by um, by uh, taking a knee during the the singing of the national anthem and so on, but I want to I, w- I want to focus on one thing. It's been mentioned a, n- a number of times in passing, and it's been and and people have pointed out the consequences of it. But I I want to uh, I, w- I want to talk about one particular aspect of this, and that is professional sports uh, has to be categorized as a form of show business Uh, uh, professional sports is entertainment and as entertainment it is um, it is something that is dependent upon people paying to see it and uh, it's astonished me for some years as i've watched um, uh, video footage of games that stadiums are frequently full right in, during the daytime, in the middle of the day, you've got thousands and thousands of, of people turning out to watch their team play, and these stadiums are frequently uh, jammed. Well, on top of that, um, uh, different um, municipalities, different cities, have given uh, the NFL all kinds of tax breaks and incentives in order to get them to build new and new grandiose stadiums, which then need to be filled. Now, if if it is true that the uh, an NFL football game is is show business, and if it is true that you need to keep the fans coming, you need to keep it exciting. You need to uh, keep people on the edge of their seat in order to give them. Uh, their money's worth and and the tickets are sort of out of this world the last the last thing that you want to do is make your audience mad and i i don't think that we've seen um i i don't think that we've seen as this great a this big a disconnect between people who are there to please an audience with an exciting game and the people themselves. So it's it's sort of like um, it, it would be like a, a movie actor um, coming out on the release of a one hundred million dollar um, um, movie, and at the at the at the press conference or when it's being uh, released or at the red carpet at the premiere, um, being interviewed by somebody, he he says, you know, anybody who pays money to to come watch this this movie is a moron, or um, all all my fans are morons. Uh, that would seem. I, I suspect that there would be some producers and directors and investors and so on who'd be unhappy with that kind of behavior, because you don't insult your audience. 
Um, and it's and it's quite strikingly obvious that um, the the pampered um, rich athletes who are undertaking these protests, which in another uh, in another setting on their own time, uh, they have every right to do. But when people came paid money to see the show, uh, not a political protest, the uh, particularly when the the um, the sentiments of the athletes are so wildly out of sync with the general demographic sentiments of the of the average football fan, the average NFL fan, that that makes you realize that makes you think that uh, that these athletes have sort of started to think the way people in bubbles think they this has been going on they've been on a gravy train for quite a while and this has been going along for a long enough time that they are uh, entitled they're they're used to it they're accustomed to it everything is going to continue on the way it always has well except when the stadium is only half full ESPN is um, another outfit the NFL is socially liberal politically culturally socially liberal ESPN is um, the the same and they have radically alienated the people who are most likely to to subscribe to a channel like that and watch it they're bleeding subscribers they're bleeding customers and they don't seem to understand that it's because they had particular talents in the entertainment industry and their talents of social, cultural, political analysis are not nearly as pronounced. They're not nearly as um, uh, capable in that area. And so what they've done is they've, um, they've made their customers mad. They've made their, and more than that, it's they've made their fan base mad. You know, if, if, if I'm, can get a good price of gasoline at a gas station. The executives of that that company might make me mad, but I, I would still be willing to buy gas there. But if you lose a fan, you're losing people who are invested more than um, they're invested more than just watching um, uh, watching physical action on the field. They want to identify with players and personalities and people talk about role models and all that and my my uh, observation here is not um, is not so that we can uh, is not so that you can hear me praising that that culture or um, that excessive uh, sports mania kind of uh, fan base because you know I, I, I think it's um, fun that we live in a world where Green Bay Packers fans can take their shirt off when it's 15 below and and uh, and uh, carry on in the stands. I think it's kind of neat that God made the world that way. But I, I've never been able to understand how people go that deep, how, the, how people can be that committed or that far into it. But neither do, neither do I understand why, when there are people like that, um, uh, you know, adoring their entertainment uh, superstars, to then have those superstars turn around and insult them, doesn't seem to make very good sense to me. 
God in the time of the sickness. God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.